Welcome to the Real Change series on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Inspired by Sharon's newest book, Real Change, this series features conversations with activists, artists, and teachers, all discussing the intersection of meditation and social action. To learn more, visit realchangebook.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm delighted to speak today with my friend, Ellen Agler, for the Real Change podcast series. Ellen serves as the CEO of the END Fund, a private philanthropic initiative working to see an end of the suffering caused by five neglected tropical diseases, affecting 1.7 billion of the world's most impoverished people, including more than 1 billion children. The END Fund actively supports programs with dozens of partners more than 25 countries, focusing on sub-Saharan Africa. Ellen currently serves on the boards of the Global Institute for Disease Elimination, Uniting to Combat NTDs, Legatum Institute, the World Economic Forum's Global Health Security Advisory Board, and Panorama Global. Her first book, Under the Big Tree, Extraordinary Stories from the Movement to End Neglected Tropical Diseases, was released in January of 2019. Welcome back to the podcast, Ellen. Thank you so much for having me again, Sharon. It's a delight to be here. I like how you said first book. I'm like, oh, is another yeah, one coming? Right. <laughs> is, that a, is, that a, is that an offer? <laughs> sure. Are you, th- are you writing another book? Oh, no. I'm take- I'm, I'm, I don't know. I, how do you decide when it's time to write another book? It just feels like something, <laughs> something new has to emerge, and I'm not sure what that next one would be yet. Something new has to mm. emerge. That's mm-hmm. very true. So you're one of the uh, only second-time guests on the podcast. So, Oh, my gosh. What an honor. Yeah. Wow. Thank tre- you, Sharon. We're each recording remotely yeah. today from our respective quarantine homes yeah. amid the coronavirus pandemic. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the technology that allows us to connect. Me too. And you're in North Carolina, is that right? I am indeed in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It's so funny because of... All my friends, I travel a lot, and a few people travel. This is in the before times, as we say. A few people traveled more than I, and you are definitely one of them. It's a strange time. I definitely haven't gone this long without traveling in my adult life. I mean, definitely since maybe I was 21 or 22, and I'm 48 now. Um, and it's been lovely. I think I realized early on in this quarantine period that I was like, this isn't, this isn't lockdown. This is a retreat. This is getting to slow down. This is getting to meditate more. This is sleep in my own bed more. Um, so I was just relishing it for the first part of the quarantine. Now I'm getting a bit stir crazy, I'd say, but, um, as is my 10 year old daughter, but I'm deeply grateful for all of the relationships that I have with people around the world so that I can keep doing this kind of work even in this time, um, and that everybody's been leaning into doing things virtually. I was on the phone this morning with the First Lady's office in Rwanda, and I, I thought, wow, I've n- I never Zoomed with them before, but now it's a regular, a regular ca- occasion to be Zooming with folks I usually would have gotten into a plane to travel to see in the past. This recording is part of a larger <laughs> series of conversations on the Meta Hour centered around the themes of my book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World. I've had that question for myself for so long, 
What's the role of mindfulness and loving kindness in changing the world, changing ourselves and changing the world? And this book is the culmination of that question. So I look to many veteran activists and social change agents in a variety of fields, such as yourself, to explore how meditation practice can serve as the foundation for an engaged life. And that can be through work, through creativity, through family, through systems change, or beyond. And I've known you for a number of years now and and have been deeply inspired by your work. And I'm so delighted to share your story. And maybe you can talk a little bit first about the end fund and how it's functioning in these times. Thank you, Sharon. And congratulations. I've been so excited about this book coming out. This book, I feel, has been needed for the those of us working in social change and activism, I think, are really leaning on pra- practices of mindfulness um, and just introspection and self-reflection and self-inquiry. And um, I... I I've been telling you I can't wait for this book to be to be out so I could buy it for everybody that I know who needs it. Thank you. Um, yeah, so the N Fund, um, N stands for Ending Neglected Diseases. And these diseases that I work on are um, some people might have heard of, but lots of people haven't. Uh, things like river blindness and blinding trachoma, schistosomiasis and lymphatic filariasis, lots of, uh, lots of diseases that are actually incredibly prevalent. Um, but are because they're diseases of poverty. They're diseases if you don't have access to clean water and sanitation, um, you often have one or more of these diseases. So it really is in poor uh, communities, although they are prevalent in more than a hundred countries. And even in the U.S., wasn't that long ago that you we had trachoma um, was one of the things that was checked for if you came through Ellis Island. And hookworm was incredibly prevalent in the American South. That was sort of the foundation of the Rockefeller Foundation, actually, was as a hookworm initiative, hookworm eradication initiative. And they're diseases that just hold people back from full human flourishing. Sometimes they cause blindness, other times disability, oftentimes just this, like, uh, just sapping of nutrients and energy, causing stunted growth um, and just lack of ability to fill full potential. So what's been amazing is even though many of these diseases have been around for thousands of years, there are treatments, um, you know, both and the ability to prevent them. And then once people have the diseases to be able to receive treatment. So really the end fund has been focusing on helping work with local partners and governments um, to strengthen health systems and improve access to care. Uh, and it's just been phenomenal. I mean, really over just the course of the decade that I've been working in this field, we've been able to scale up treatment for hundreds of millions of people and also millions of people no longer need treatment and, um, and have been cured of the diseases. So it's, it really is public health at scale. Um, and just for me, I love doing things in collaboration and with the real systems view and this, you know, these are local problems and with a sort of global framework for how to salute, um, how to, how to solve them. So just amazing number of, of partners from scientists to, pharma companies to philanthropists that all are coordinating around around this work but pretty transformational but also can be really stressful so the the my mindfulness practice i don't i don't think without it i could actually do my work at the end fund you began practice before you began this work right or were they concurrent um well 
It's interesting. I when I was in high school in Idaho, I had a neighbor who was a yoga Iyengar yoga teacher who first introduced me to meditation. And then my I went to undergraduate, started at Columbia College and took a class on Indo-Tibetan Buddhism when I was a freshman there. Um, and that I think was the the entree for me. So it's been yeah, 30 years or so of of, of on on and off. Always feel like a beginner, but having having an intentionality around uh, a meditation practice and a mindfulness practice and sort of movement-based mindfulness as well that have just become the rock for my life uh, and just the willingness to create space and a routine around that kind of self-inquiry and self-reflection. It seems that this must be a period where you've had to call on a tremendous amount of creativity to to pivot, right? Because like delivery systems... Remember you telling me how many children in school uh, around the globe were were treated for worms in school, and then schools closed. So. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Deworming the 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 classic deworming program is um, happens in schools where schools are the platform, and whether kids are in school or use it as a place to bring kids that are out of school to receive medicines. There, it's there's more schools than health clinics in most countries, and we found ourselves in a moment where a billion kids are out of out of school and health systems shut down. And so, yeah, when COVID hit, there was just a huge grinding halt um, of all kinds of health services at the community level. And that's shifted. I mean, honestly, you can't keep health services from people forever. I mean, you can, you can delay a deworming treatment and you, you know, kids might get sicker, but they're not going to die, but people are dying of not having malaria treatment and not having, um, access to critical care. So I've just seen communities get quite creative about maybe it's not the school platform, but being able to go house to house with community health workers. Um, and and we're looking all the time right now. There's a lot more countries who want to start up programming for um, neglected tropical disease delivery of programs. And so we're supporting health workers to have more PPE and more training and maybe taking um, doing treatment over a longer period of time um, than was done previously. So the tough part, it's more expensive, but we are really seeing a a turn where a lot more treatment is able to happen. That's really interesting and very Mm -hmm. good to hear. You know, I I keep thinking about, I forget the name of your friend who was at that um, dinner you hosted when we were both at the Skull Foundation um, Global Forum and uh, who was really training people, medical workers to go house to house and in the Mm. remote areas. And, um, you know, it's such a different delivery system than what we conjecture here in the West. And and for me, I would say that my own meditation practice has helped me have a greater flexibility of mind, you know, and not be so stuck. And like, this is the only way this can happen. This is the, the one way that um, this should look and and to realize that uh, it's a bigger world, you know, and that <laughs> and that there's some greater ability I feel within me to see more possibilities. That's so well put. I also feel like uh, any I, any sense we have of control is is an illusion of control. <laughs> and if there was ever a time that made that more clear, it's now. Um, but that. Uh, yeah, I think that mind of flexibility, I always remember you saying like, 
uh, yeah, you know, will this happen? Won't this, will this other thing happen? And it's, well, something will happen and just land on that. Something will happen. And then we will deal with that. (laughs) Whatever that next thing is, it will arise and then we will address it then. Um, and there's just a lot of energy that can be used by sort of perseverating and imagining and catastrophizing about the future rather than just settling into what, what, what is really present, um, and being really present for others. It's great. Uh, I see that, you know, when I was writing this book, I, um, I did this strange pivot. I feel I was like a strange loop. I was talking about, um, kind of individual change and how that could affect our work in the world. And then, uh, I moved into some vision of systems change and, and having that not just individual application of good heartedness as, as something we could explore. And then I, I looped right around back to, uh, individual change, you know, in, in the sense of, uh, I think the last story in the book is about a, a friend and his father. Um, you know, and so that range also fascinates me. The the one-on-one sense of making a difference in someone's life and then looking at large-scale systems like public health systems. And I think of you as kind of at the epicenter of balancing both. It's hmm. such an interesting observation because I think – in order to make large scale change, you have to think beyond what you can do as an individual, what your particular organization can do, but like how do all these organizations, how does, how does the, what is the government's part? What is the private sector's part? What are the different NGOs and actors in civil society doing? What is the individual level? And like, what are the levers of change and the levers of action where you could either you know, inject some more funding or some more technical support and help all of the pieces just be more. I mean, I, I spent a a, a call earlier today was just of the head of neglected tropical diseases for the Gates Foundation, for the US government, for the UK government and for the World Health Organization and, and then me with the end fund. And collectively we're like the largest funders in this space. And it's, we speak on a regular basis to just say like, well, let's make sure that we're not overlapping is what we're doing synergistic. We we all have really big, complicated portfolios of work, but how can we make sure that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts? Um, so that sort of systems level work, I think is, is so interesting. And it's the, um, I mean, our dear mutual friend, Jeff Walker talks so much about this as like the, um, this, this term system entrepreneur, that actually there's a way of, of, of working in the in-between spaces between organizations. That's so important for large scale change. But then for me, if, if I can't keep in my mind, the one person also that whose life will be changed, it can get really abstract and sort of demotivating and like, who are we really helping at the end of the day when it's all this, you know, like coordination activities and system mapping activities until I think of, you know, the one woman who I saw have trachoma surgery, Nieva, whose eyelashes were turning inwards and scratching her cornea to the point that she was about to become permanently blind. And with this very simple 20 minute surgery was that was able to be reversed and like just holding her or, you know, sometimes I have that in my mind, like when I'm thinking about program design on a very macro level, I think, what would Nieba think about this? Like that one person that I know in the community who really cares about, about this work. So I do think that this, 
how do you how do you hold both to be true? Because you can get overly theoretical and, and you can also sometimes just not have as much impact if you're only thinking sort of one person at a time. Mm-hmm. I would think that also if you're only thinking in terms of systems, it can get immensely frustrating. <laughs> yes, right? Definitely. Because the, the gratification can come with that one person or that sense of like, okay, something was accomplished and trying to change a system is often slow going and yet also extremely important because mm. it's it's reaching into causes and conditions mm. for, for suffering to happen. Mm-hmm. How do you think of systems on the level of of your work in terms of mindfulness? Is it systems of all of the different teachers? Is it systems of actually different practices of a system of using loving kindness versus or um, breath work and attention? I mean, what would be the way of defining systems work in the, in the mindfulness that is space? That's so interesting. Um, I more think of it as a, a kind of education and looking for causes mm-hmm. and conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I haven't really thought about the system of who we are because um, of course, that's true, and and a lot of that is um, not necessarily intentional, but it becomes synergistic. So, for example, when I came back from India in 1974 as a teacher, I mean, nobody knew the word mindfulness at all, but mm-hmm. you know, meditation was seen as often seen as something kind of exotic and mm-hmm. a little strange and woo woo, and mm-hmm. and uh, somewhere along the way. Uh, scientists and researchers and neuroscientists became interested in how meditation, the neuroscientists, how meditation can function on the brain. And, and uh, all of a sudden there was, there was um, kind of a collaboration between meditation teachers and the scientists who were studying it. And, and the, the sum of those efforts has been enormous, far greater than what either of us could probably do on our own. And, um, and the same in a way with artists that I can remember I was teaching in New York city with a friend uh, whose wife is a, a graphic artist. And, and he said to me, you know, that you can tell when these methods and, and this perspective is really taken root in this country when the artists get involved. Mm-hmm. And after that, I went to Madison, Wisconsin, and I had lunch with Richie Davidson, who's a, a, one of the main neuroscientists um, researching meditation. And, and, you know, I've known him for a long time. And, and he said to me, uh, you know, you can really tell when these methods and this perspective is taken root in this country when the scientists get involved. Honey, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I heard it was the artists, you know, and. Uh, but there's something about, you know, the artists have um, so many uh, kind of courageous means of expression mm-hmm. and uh, bring these these ideas into uh, such an inspiring form. And, and the scientists in many ways for many people are the validators, you know, of saying, oh, this isn't just some esoteric weird thing. This is actually changing my brain. This is changing genetic expression. Look at that. Hmm. Um, you know, and so I, I see, if I think of a system, it's way beyond just the teachers, the meditation teachers, uh, but all these different spheres of, of people who have undertaken it and are bringing it to life in their own way. I love that. 
love that. It's Another just- thing that Jeff Walker, our mutual friend, <laughs> says, um, I think I might quote him in the book saying this, but when he talks about systems and that kind of collaboration, he, his his phrase is a managed ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting, because not no ego. Can you actually get rid of ego? Is it just keeping it in check, observing it, observed ego, disconnected of it from ego? I feel like, especially in social change work, um, you know, it's very easy to get your ego or your identity, your sense of self so wrapped up in your work that when things are tough with work or you have everything come to a crushing halt because of COVID or, you know, the, the complexities of doing your humanitarian work and trying to reconcile with issues around racial justice as we are, you know, are right now, or the amount of mental health issues that are rampant in our space. It's, it's hard to, if you have too much ego involved and your organization is struggling, um, if, if you don't have that distance, you can, you can really start to think that, oh, it's, I'm the problem. And somebody said to me this week, they were talking about markets, actually, they were an investment, you know, one of the, one of our donors, um, who said, you know, in 2008, I, 2007, I made more money than I thought I, you know, could in a lifetime. 2008, I lost more money than I ever thought possible. All I did was, you know, cry all the time and feel devastated and feel like a loser. And that idea of like, they said, but the, the truth is, even that is arrogant. That's like an ego attachment. Like I'm, because the opposite's not true. When everything goes well, it's not all because of me. When everything goes badly, it's not all because of me. Like where's the spaciousness? And he's, you know, seeing the markets doing terribly right now. And he's like, I just through having a contemplative practice, I just feel so much more easeful about it. Like this, this too, we will ride this storm. And this is not about. It's not all about me. Um, so I, yeah, I feel like there's, you know, how cause this work in social change, it's so important and it can, it can just, it can be all consuming because it's never done. And if you don't find some tools to have longevity with it and think, you know, these amazing pictures of Angela Davis, you know, just think, how can you be a lifelong activist and, and keep making change as you ride these different waves of history and keep working to bend the arc of justice towards good, um, you know, the arc of history towards justice, I guess, is the or dark, uh, is the quote. Then, you know, we're going to lose a lot of great people along the way. So there is something about, I think, mindfulness practice that sort of helps create sustainable social activists. Here's a quotation from you that I used in the book. It's okay to pause before responding. It's okay to just be with what is and see how it might be a different what is if you just wait a day or two Hmm. and try to access wisdom and see a deeper truth that may be what really needs to be responded to. So it's such a valuable aspiration and one that can be very difficult, especially I think when you're faced with a, a kind of a sense of urgency about helping or faced with pretty difficult circumstance like you often are in your work. So it seems like it would take a kind of inner resource or almost stamina to be able to pause in what seem like higher stakes situations. 
And this is where it is interesting, the intersection with science, just like how does your brain work? When are you, when are you flooding? When do you, when is your amygdala turn on this fight, flight, freeze? And just realizing like, that's not, remember, that's not the place you want to respond from. And when a million things are coming at you, you have the ability to like slow the movie down. Like just because someone needs a decision immediately doesn't mean you have to make a decision immediately. It's like, I definitely have recognized like sometimes just getting more spaciousness around it, finding your, your own energy of mind and body to get into a more expansive place and see broader. Cause it really is when you're stressed, it is like tunnel vision, um, literally and figuratively. And then it's, it's very difficult to keep the wide view. And I feel like as you grow in leadership positions in this space, you just have to hold so many different viewpoints together and, and, and figure out what are the nuances and what's not, what's being said, but what's not being said and how to reconcile and support the communities that you're trying to work with. Um, so it's fun. It's funny to hear yourself quoted to you. I, know. <laughs> I was like, Oh, I said that. That sounds really good. <laughs> I need to remember that. <laughs> I know it is so strange. It is really, really strange. It happens a lot. Really? Especially because I'm, you know, I've been teaching a long time. People can dredge up quotations from like, you know, 1980. Do people ever quote you and you say, there's no way I ever said that? That just doesn't make any sense. (laughs) It feels that way. Like, I I don't often reread my own books. No, I certainly don't reread them right away. And then I I wait a while and uh, I. I have reread the recent one. I'm actually going to record the audio soon for it. So I was looking at the the text, and I've I've looked back at my first book was Loving Kindness. It came out 25 years ago, and I think, did I say that? I don't <laughs> even know that. You know, I barely know it now. Wait, so you're going to record the audio for Real Change or the audio yeah. for Loving Kindness? Okay, oh great, uh, the audio for Real Change. Yeah. Uh, I love listening to your books in the audio version, Sharon. You've got a beautiful voice. And it's funny because when I heard that there was an audio contract for my book, I told you this, like, I was like, I want to read my own book. It's just such an amazing experience to be able to read your book. And then I was told, oh, no, you have to interview. You have to audition for that. I was like, really? For your own book? Shoot. (laughs) I I didn't have a good contract on that. And then I didn't, I auditioned and I didn't make it. So I had to really, you know, practice that, like, don't get attached even though I felt attached. Like, oh, actually, the person who read it did a much better job than I would have. <laughs> actually, it's not in my contract either, but uh, uh, a few books ago, um, I was told by the publishing, that publishing company that they were hiring an actress to to read my book. And I said, no, you can't do that. Like, you know, there's so many guided meditations in there. It's not like a novel, you know, it's like you have to really think about that and then they they uh, surrendered so that worked (laughs) well plus i mean it's amazing sharon the number of places i go around the world and it comes up you know because i'd like to talk to people about meditation and mindfulness practice they're like oh yeah i love this sharon salzburg i'd love listening to her meditation so i was like and they're they're you know we're driving through abu dhabi or we're driving through ghana or we're driving through rwanda <laughs> like sharon's voice i mean it must be a strange thing it's like you know all over the planet <laughs> if yeah. there's a way for you to even know all the points of light where your voice is and where you're supporting people and it's really like the, the, there's a i don't know it's a i think it's part of teaching that's around that buddhist idea of trans transmission and when you are when you are speaking and you're telling a story and you're telling something from a deepest truth it's why I don't like, 
uh, listening to books on tape. I have some friends who are like, oh, listen to it at like 1.2 speed or 1.5 and you can get through the content quicker. I'm like, no, I love hearing the actual quality and rhythm and nuance and speed of somebody's voice. And that speaks to me so much in addition to what the actual words are. And I feel like you just do that so well in your teachings. Thank you so much. It's a little... um intricate doing it from home i'm barry maps oh uh, uh, yeah in my homes and uh um they wanted me to go into a closet to do it <laughs> i guess it's the best sound protection or something and and i said i don't really want to do that first of all i have to empty out the closet and then you know i need like a chair i need the microphone i need the text so which means an ipad or computer and it seems a little awkward so we're turning this office room I have as best we can into a um a studio, you know, so it was like mm. foam everywhere and I had to get some more shoji screens <laughs> very good for sound and it, it's like a whole setup. It's it's kind of interesting. So hopefully it passes muster on Monday, you know. <laughs> <laughs> actually do it. Oh my gosh. We're all trying to figure out how to live and work differently. This um last few months there's been a lot of major global health convenings like the a global vaccine alliance meeting was going to happen. And this happens, you know, only every five years, big investment in helping to ensure there's enough money to scale access to vaccines to children around the world. Mm-hmm. And that's usually a, you know, heads of state come together, big funders come together. And that was going to be a big meeting in London. I was supposed to be a part of the Commonwealth heads of government meeting in Rwanda. All these things have been postponed and it's just so amazing to see them all happening online now. Um, and actually to sort of question like, did I? Did we really need to travel for all these things? What is this? What is this routine that we've gotten into that I completely had fallen trapped to? Of you have to go, you have to be, you have to like from a relational perspective to get the work done. We always have to be on the go. And I think um, the number of you know, if I added up the number of hours and days and years, it, it it's years that I've spent on airplanes. I am definitely questioning, like, actually, yeah, it's nice to have everybody kind of second check. Like, does it, does it, when, when does it really matter to be in person in the community? And when, when can you, uh, you know, save the planet a little bit by not having such a big carbon in, uh, footprint? Was I watched the Dalai Lama give a teaching not too long ago. And uh, he has basically, I mean, even before, uh, the rest of the world shut down. I hear he, you know, stopped doing um, in-person interviews or meeting mm. people. And um, so he was sitting in his chair and there's this big, big screen in front of him. Hmm. And and Bob Thurman, who I know was a professor of yours when you were in college, uh, must have been on the screen because he kept talking about how sweet Bob Thurman's face was. You know? <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, oh, he's connecting, you know, like, uh, it was just such an amusing sight, like watching him sit there and look at the screen, Ooh. as we all are, you know, but his was bigger than mine. Have you seen that new Dalai Lama movie about his, sort of came out around the week of his 85th birthday? I'm trying to remember what it's, the, what it's called, but it's, it's so beautifully done. And yeah, it's, the, it's the entire story of his life. And yeah. there's, of course, amazing footage from his entire life. But the only narrator is him. It's it's like he is just personally telling the story of his entire life. It's just beautiful. Yeah, yeah and there are many uh, lovely um, 
videos people have submitted, you know, that you can find here and there on, on his site. And mm. you know, wishing him a happy birthday. So it's mm-hmm. the great 14th. That's what it's called. Yeah. I think yeah. had an, a big online um, global screening. I think people from like 120 countries joined for the 24 hour period. They had it free for everybody to watch. And then I think they're going to, yeah, I don't know where you can get it now, but really good. Which brings me to actually to a question I wanted to ask you, which um, when I think of resilience, um, I know that for me, it in part has meant having a deepening relationship to joy. And in this particular conversation, I started thinking about inspiration, you know, having a model, having a mentor, having a, a picture in our minds of someone or a group that um, lift us when we think about them, I think is a part of resilience. If you feel like you're just struggling and uh, it may seem endless and, and there's not a lot of joy, it's just that much harder. Mm-hmm. So true. Who are those people for you? Well, for me, it would certainly be like my teacher, Deepama, mm-hmm. yeah. um, who is the person who told me to teach, who'd had uh, such tremendous suffering in her life, and and actually the Dalai Lama as well, and maybe the hallmark is someone who's had a lot of suffering in their lives, mm-hmm. you know, because we don't think of the Dalai Lama that way, but of course it's true for him as well, and um, and there's something about uh, both of them that in their displaying of a great lightness of spirit, that uh, they don't seem defined by that suffering. They're not avoiding the suffering or denying it, but uh, there's something, you know, you don't, you don't think of being with them and getting increasingly depressed in their presence. You know, it's quite the opposite. It's quite mind. the opposite. I just think that's such a magical way to live. Like actually the wisdom that comes from deep suffering and, you know, that idea, all of us suffer, like life is 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, but how do you not only live in the place of sorrow and sorrow holding you down? And like the Dalai Lama is laughing all the time. Oh, I didn't know actually about Deepa Ma until I met you, Sharon, and I read that mm-hmm. short book about her that's so inspiring. What an incredible yeah. woman. Um, I mean, I think that way when I think about you. I just feel like my heart is light. I think about my mom, my 10-year-old daughter. Interestingly, I've been spending time with more animals during um, COVID. We we didn't adopt a dog during COVID. We actually had one last year, but it's like I always thought, oh, this is very impractical to have a dog. I travel too much. And uh-huh. then, but then I just thought I need more impractical joy in my life. And I used to ride horses a lot when I was a kid. And I, that's impractical also. And I thought, yeah, but it makes me so happy. So I've been trying to get on a horse once in a while, which has brought a lot of joy. It's fantastic. My friends adopted a puppy and they, they write about how happy mm. the puppy makes them. And so when I do loving kindness practice and so, you know, one of the categories is offering loving kindness to a benefactor that's mm. someone who kind of lifts your spirits. When you think of them, I often use the puppy as a <laughs> recipient. Hmm. What do you think it is to go, for people who experience a great deal of suffering, how not to be weighted by it? Even, I mean, it feels like there is so much suffering going on in the world. And, you know, this particular time and covid and the recession and politics and um and it's hard for even those of us who have a deep practice not to sometimes just feel kind of overwhelmed by it uh but that that vision of like holding that in an expansive way 
not attaching to it and knowing that it will also change and this moment will become a different moment um, and how to still spark joy. I think that's that really is so much of what your work and your books are about. And I feel like have given me personally so many helpful tools, but I don't know if you would offer to thank others. You. That was beautifully said. And thank you for, <laughs> for that. And I think, you know, some of it in the practical level is boundaries. Mm. It's, it's wisdom. It means wisdom really, you know, boundaries sounds like a harsh word, but it means wisdom, you know, like we can do what we can do. And, and I think sometimes, certainly in my work, um, you see a kind of magic or, or you see uh, things happen as, as different conditions emerge that are kind of surprising. And, and it didn't feel that fulfilling when you first did them, you know, whatever mm-hmm. your action was. But it was part of a greater whole that you couldn't sense at the time. And it was very important that you did what you did because it was like planting a seed and so um i think it must be very hard in in the philanthropic world um this is in my book too there was a time i was teaching for a uh large global philanthropy um in new york city and they seated me in the room and uh my the wall opposite me, so it was what I was looking at the whole, or what I could see the whole time, had in giant letters, uh, if you can't measure it, it didn't happen. <laughs> and I brought that up because I said, you know, so different than my own conditioning. And I understood it. Like if you're giving people money, you want to be sure it's not being wasted or, you know, it's not being used mm-hmm. recklessly. But I said, what about if you educate a child and you don't see the result for 20 years? Do you think you failed for 19? Or, you know, like it's so much more complex, I think, than those ways of measuring. And I I mean, you're right in the middle of that world. I don't know how how it is for you. There is a massive reckoning happening in my world of philanthropy and global health and international aid and how all of this work is done and who, where does power lie and who has voice in design of programs. And I do feel like there's been a push, which is, can be a little bit um, Western imposed or donor imposed sometimes. Like we have to have measure and have this kind of framework and this kind of report and obsession with a, with a written word. Um, when that doesn't, you know, isn't always the right way of reporting in the culture that you're working in. Um, and I just think it is important to measure. It is important to know that you're using resources efficiently, but also what's at the center, what's like the deeper value there is around, are you supporting human flourishing? Are you, you know, are you really holding the human dignity of every single person at the center of decision-making? Are you prioritizing a, you know, a relational approach versus a transactional approach? And are you leaving enough space for uh, voices of people who really are going to be the most effective by these programs? And so I just, I think that there's so much unpacking um, of, of those kind of questions. And I, I do think it's sometimes like you, if you measure like this, this urgency to get, get good work done, there's something about urgency that can be just then replicating the same patterns that we always have had. Um, and whether that's, you know, patterns of, uh, 
structural racism, the strep patterns of this sort of like north-south power dynamic of who who holds money. You know, I mean, I literally had a philanthropist tell me once, well, I know I always follow the golden rule, but the golden rule I follow is he who has the gold makes the rules. And Ooh, <laughs> I was like, well, she who has the gold. <laughs> like, yes. It was like, and I like, that is pretty, that's, I don't believe that at all. Like, where's the true gold is in the community. Like what are re, redefine gold here in terms of how you actually bring different people together for social change. And so I think, um, yeah, I think that's the, you know, where sort of wisdom and shaping the table differently and the kind of work that we get done is so important. I just, you just made me think in talking about wisdom, there's this, there's this great Sanskrit word um, that's used a lot in Ayurveda, Prajnaparada, and it means crimes against wisdom. I like, (laughs) and I think there's like, actually, if you take enough time to get clear and in your own heart and like spacious enough to be like, you hear what the wisdom is at the moment of what, and the crime against wisdom is like crime against your own, is crime against yourself. Um, I just love that word. I wish we had one in English that was so succinct as like yeah, crimes against wisdom. That's fantastic. I might have to mm. try to adopt that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you my other new, my other new favorite word, because uh, I was interviewed in the, in the New York Times about um, doom scrolling. Mm. And actually, I had oh, to ask the funny. journalist, "What's that?" <laughs> you know, is that like scrolling through Twitter when just obsessing exactly. with the negative news? <laughs> exactly. That's it. I guess. Oh my God, that's a crime against wisdom. <laughs> that is a crime against wisdom. Doom scrolling is that a great term or what? Oh, and wow. talk about forgetting to look for the joy, and mm. it's actually difficult to look for the joy. It can feel selfish or mm. um, self-centered, or or overlooking the very real pain, but I just see it as kind of restoring oneself. And so it's so funny because when uh, he he wrote the article and, it, you know, we posted it on Twitter and, and people uh, responded with things like, I'm doing it. I'm backing away now. You know? <laughs> like, oh, no. Like, that's what I do all the time. And, and I really understood. Well, we could start, we could start a, uh, try to start a meme of just say joy scrolling because there's yes. something about even like where you, where you set your gaze as you're just going out for a walk or what are you, what piece of nature are you noticing? What are you, what little positive glimpse of human interaction can you just like set your gaze at between strangers and like there's a, there's joy scrolling in the world. It's like, it is just like an, a, a shift of attention. And I feel like that's such an important practice because like the more you the more you, it's like a cultivation of gratitude. Um, so yeah, forget doom scrolling. I'm going for joy scrolling. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I, I think he, when the journalist wrote to me originally, he said, uh, it referred to me by another one of my colleagues who was not quoted in the article. And I thought, I wonder why she recommended me. Is it because she doesn't do it and she thinks I do, you know, like, <laughs> which I kind of do sometimes, you know. Oh, that's funny. You know. So that's like, literally the whole topic of the articles on doom scrolling. <laughs> doom scrolling. I highly recommend it. It's a great article. I'll look it up. I will. It's a great term. So crimes against wisdom <laughs> and doom scrolling are, are things to watch out for in 2020. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So remember the article that you kind of spearheaded that uh, four 
friends wrote um, for Tricycle Magazine. Yes. I want to bring that up as we come toward the end of our conversation because I thought it was so fantastic. It was, it was about the four qualities of the heart or the four Brahmaviharas of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And each of you took a quality and talked about it in how it manifests in your work uh, in the world. So I wonder if you could just say a little bit about that. Yeah, that was so, that was, we, I think that was soon after you and I met, um, uh-huh. I think 2015. I think that article got a lot of, uh, a lot of people read it. It was the idea and you were teaching a course. I remember coming and seeing like a card of these four uh, boundless states and, I just thought, oh, if we can just anchor in each of these in the work that I do in public health and international aid and disaster response, loving kindness, compassion, what does that actually mean to anchor in those? So yeah, it was, I believe, um, you wrote an intro, Pierre Ferrari, who's the head of Heifer International, who also has a deep uh, meditation practice, David Addis, who studied with Roshi Joan Halifax and and run the organization at the time called Children Without Worms. Jeff Walker and me, and just took different pieces of how do you think about what does sympathetic joy mean in your work? And I remember Jeff wrote um, about one of his mentors who really helped him see this is not just about you know the pain of alleviating human suffering. There's a lot, a lot of joy in this work, and how can you instead of being jealous of somebody, feel joyful for their success and. Um, yeah, I think I, I don't. I just feel like there's there's ways of weaving in these concepts even to some of the most fraught, difficult uh, work that we do to help, yeah, create resilience, as you said. Fantastic, thank you. So, why yeah, don't I think we... that article is called in, "In the Spirit of Service," if I remember. People want to look it up in Tricycle Magazine. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, as we come to now, I hate to let you go, but I, I feel like I have to. <laughs> so why don't we all just practice together for a few minutes? We'll sit together in silence, and then I'll I'll close it. Wonderful! I would love that. These days, when I practice, I try to rely on something simple like the feeling of the breath and just have a cultivation of that quality of rest, just resting my attention on the feeling of the breath. As I used to say to myself in my very early practice, you're breathing anyway. All you need to do is feel it. Relax. I also used to say to myself, let the breath come to you. And when you find your attention wandering, it's okay. See if you can just gently let go and come back.
Thank you so much. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, Sharon. Zoom sometime soon. I look forward to it. And thank you all for joining us today. To learn more about Ellen's work at the End Fund, you can visit their website at www.end.org. And I highly recommend her book, her first book, which is called Under the Big Tree. It's available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Sadly, not read by her, but you can, <laughs> you can wish for the next one. And thank you, all of you, for joining us. This has been the Real Change series on the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Real Change is available September 1st in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. Learn more at realchangebook.com.